Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to the... Okay, thanks. <laughs> it's my timer going off telling me to take a break. Um, hello, welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 97 of the show with Corinne Grant. You can find her on Twitter. She's a comedian, author, activist, and putting her money where her mouth is, becoming a lawyer to be an activist lawyer. Uh, she's on Twitter at Corinne Grant, C-O-R-I-N-N-E underscore Grant. If you want to hear the show every week magically appearing in your phone, you can simply subscribe at SoundCloud, iTunes, or in the uh, podcast app of your choice. You can also subscribe to the mailing list at osherginsberg.com. And um, if you want to write me, uh, send osher email at gmail.com. And I write back to pretty much everybody. So I certainly read every single email that comes through. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, MySpace, wherever. I hope your week was good. Uh, thanks, everybody, that watched and tweeted along with The Bachelor on Wednesday and Thursday night. It was an enormous amount of fun, and we couldn't make this show if we didn't have support. It's just the way television works. If you don't get people watching, you don't get to make it again. And, and you guys are really, really watching in the squillions, and we're very, very, very grateful for all of that. I hope your week was okay. I had a, I had a beastly week. I will not lie. I had a beastly, beastly week. There was a, there's a couple of things that went on. I've been talking over the last few weeks about it. There's a bunch of stuff going on, but it involves other people, so I can't really talk about it, but it's heavy, right? And um, um, the, the problem that I face is that I don't realize when I'm having a, 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 a really horrible day, um, and I don't know. I just I – just, I just don't know if I'm having a bad day. I, I can't tell. I really can't. Um, it was up to my girlfriend, Audrey, to tell me that I was having a bad day, which is crazy. And that's, I intend the pun there. But sometimes I can't tell if I'm having a bad day. I really can't. She'll ask me a number of times, are you okay? And I'll say, of course I'm okay. What's the problem? But to her, I'm agitated. I'm erratic. I can't string a sentence together. And to me, I'm... Uh, I'm wondering, why do you keep asking me if I'm okay? 
but I've got to learn, I guess, to recognize more and more. I mean, I've been living alone for a couple of years now. Um, so I don't, I mean, I'm not really used to having an outward barometer of what I'm appearing to be to anybody else. So to have someone now I'm living with someone to have them go, dude, what's up with you today? I have to kind of pay attention. I have to, oh, I guess I am being strange. I don't feel it, but if I am, I guess I am. Cause I can't tell a minute when I'm in it. All I do know is that my body also can tell what I'm in it because the weird rashes and kind of wanting to puke un- unexplainably every now and again is certainly around. And I'm like, what is, why is this? Everything is okay. The sky's blue. The sun's shining. Why do I want to vomit? Why am I applying steroid cream to most parts of my body? Uh, yeah, it's odd. It's really odd. So uh, I guess this week I'm very, very grateful to have a girlfriend that's able to see that whatever's going on inside me doesn't have anything to do with her. Or sometimes me. Does that make sense? But yeah, I can, I'm, you know, I'm grateful that she points it out because I can be a nightmare and that's the last thing that I want is to be a nightmare. Anyway, I do hope that you have someone in your life that can let you know when you're ragged and maybe, just maybe this week, if someone says, hey, dude, you're all right because you don't look all right. Instead of defending yourself, go, well, I guess maybe I might be. Because honestly, when I'm in it, I can't tell. So I don't know if I'm alone in that, but... That's just what happened to me this week. I thought I'd thought I'd let you know. So let me tell you about my guest. Corinne Grant is a comedian. She's an author, an activist, an aspiring lawyer, and she's from Melbourne, Australia. She is she's a core part of a really incredible group of Melbourne comics that pretty much together took over the Australian comedy scene for much much of the 2000s and still to this day. Alongside Household names in Australia, Will Anderson, Dave Hughes, Adam Richard, Rove McManus, and many, many others. She was a part of a bunch of things. One, recreating uh, the late night television show format in this country, and also challenging the boundaries of what a political panel show on a government-run network can actually get away with. She's passionate about human rights, and Karina's putting her money where her mouth is and she's put aside her TV career, her stand-up career, and she's pursuing a law degree uh, as a mature age student, which she talks about. And she hopes to use that law degree to practice what she calls battle of law. We have a name in Australia for uh, lower middle class or just below lower middle class, battler, Aussie battler. They're like the people who, ex- who you know, are pretty much week to week. And can often get exploited by the system. And she wants to use her law degree to practice battler law, where she stands up and speaks out for people who don't have a voice. Comedians as a whole have a tendency, in my experience, to be super smart. They have to be super smart in order to make things funny. And so it is, it's quite a challenge to keep up with her and to spar with her because she's lightning quick and very, very, very clever. But look, her stories of the early days of that pack of comedians working in Melbourne is just, it's just wonderful. You're going to love this conversation, which took place in Corinne's home, uh, not far from Smith Street in the Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy, where we sat down for a cup of tea next to her grandmother's Victorian era stand-up piano that still had the inbuilt candle holders on it so you could read the sheet music at night while you entertain your guests after dinner before the age of looking down at Facebook and posting about what you had for dinner to the guests you just sat down with at dinner while you're still at dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Enjoy this 
conversation with the very smart, very funny, and let's face it, beautiful Corinne Grant. Nice. All right, I'm ro- I'm rolling now, okay. so that's exciting. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me in your beautiful home. Oh, you're nice. Thank this you. Is so lovely. This is just where in the where in the world are we for people who don't know Melbourne very well? We're in Fitzroy, which is inner city Melbourne. It's the hipster capital of Melbourne. As you can tell from my luscious beard. Yes, yeah. I've just bought a pair of uh, faux patent leather vegan shoes. Awesome. From the vegan shoe Brilliant. shop in the vegan shoe district. Great. Next to the beard emporium. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, the beard emporium. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Obviously, I don't go into it. For, you know, the, or for, for manicuring uh, and, and grooming supplies. And buying, buying your vegan moustache wax. P- precisely. Yeah. Was it this area always this way? No. So I've been living in Fitzroy for about 20 years, on and off different houses. And 20 years ago, Smith Street, which is the main uh, thoroughfare through here, you've got Brunswick Street, which a lot of people would know about yeah. shopping and restaurants and stuff. Smith Street was the Boo Radley of Fitzroy. Like no one went down it. We used to go to the club, which was the um, nightclub you went to when you just got out of jail. So <laughs> that as a 19-year-old girl from the country, I found it super exciting. But, you know, this is 20 years ago, so before there were ATMs across the bar. So you'd have to leave and get more cash out. You didn't leave the club without two blokes with you to walk down the street to the ATM because the street was just way too dangerous. Wow. So it's changed an awful lot. Boy, so did you buy back then? Were you smart enough to? Not, not, no, I was 19. Oh, yeah, well, no. I mean. <laughs> no, but, yeah, I bought about I bought about six or seven years ago. My right. next-door neighbour who died a couple of years ago is really old, um, great guy. Every time I saw him on the street, George Michael, his name was. I lived next door to George Michael, I told everyone. Giorgio Michaelopoulos, but George Michael. <laughs> and he used to always say, I buy this house for £6,000. I know, George, shut up. Stop showing off. I know, you got off for 6000 bloody pounds. There's some heavy-duty gentrification going on yeah. down on Smith Street there. Yeah, apparently underneath it is going to be the largest Woolworths in the Southern Hemisphere. What? I don't know why. Who can I? Because I, while I was having my vegan veganisms with vegan yeah. veganosity, um, uh, 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 I, I can only imagine a 19-year-old lady in a pair of thongs uh, on, it's about eight degrees today. Yeah. Uh, 19-year-old lady uh, scratching her arms, uh, pushing a stroller with a baby in yeah. it and some like 18-year-old dude next to her, uh, shopping bag full of Woodstocks. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. We're still keeping it real. Kid. What do you do? I hope that you're borrowing that kid. Please don't let it be your kid. <laughs> There's so yeah, we've still got the mix of the haves and have-nots in Fitzroy. It's just it's becoming more evident now as well. So this, you said you're a country. You're not, this is far from where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Corriong, which is at the start of the Murray River, essentially in Victoria, right at the base of the Snowy Mountains, home to the man from Snowy River. We claim so do about four other team, uh, four other towns. He's buried in our cemetery. If you believe the Manfred Snowy River was Jack Riley, it's all very complicated. But right. yeah, my hometown totes the town of the Manfred Snowy River. Was it now? This is it from a. I remember because you get these. I grew up in Queensland, which is right. You know, big country bikes, mate. Good coming to the yeah. bigs, mate. So you'd you'd often get. It's still in my like. I remember friends' dads getting drunk at parties and reciting man from snow river like oh, that wow. that was a big thing to do yeah. the party trick was how many stanzas of yeah. banjo patterson can you throw down yep and yep yeah we did a bit of that i can remember in primary school with my best friends lara and virginia we dressed up as the man from snow river so two of us were the horse yes. and i think lara was the man from snow river 
And we decided it would be great if we had a tape recorder playing the man from Snow River on as we were parading the around the school the oval. No, no, we were going to record the poem ourselves. Oh, and we couldn't because every time we got to, so we're about eight or nine or something, every time we got to the phrase and the cracks were gathered in the fray, we just lost our minds over the word crack and couldn't go any further. <laughs> so I was a very mature child. What did you folks do out there? My dad uh, came from New Zealand as a boilermaker welder and he worked on the Snowy Hydro Scheme. Wow. So, yeah, really big operation. And he met my mum, who's a, a local, yeah. And so look, that still blows my mind that us as a country right after World War II when, mm. Jesus, we need some more population um, yep. and we're going to need to feed them, I know, we'll turn a river around. Yeah. And using essentially like the most technologically incredible engineering at the time yeah. available anywhere in the world. It was like the space program yep. what they did. And they just went to it. Yeah. And they just bloody did it. Amazing. Yeah. And people came from all over the world. Incredibly yeah. educated people came from all over the world. Yep. What yep. does your dad say about working on that? Does he tell you a story? Did he tell you stories about being underground, miles? A little bit. Not too much because um, you know, occupational health and safety wasn't what it was. I was going to ask, how was his hearing? Then. His hearing was all right, but he did see quite a few blokes die. Yeah. And so he doesn't talk about it an awful lot. He is immensely proud of it, though. And I can remember as kids we used to grow up calling it Daddy's Pipes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some footage of him in a documentary that was made, I don't know, 10, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, just mm. a little bit of, you know, my very young dad mm. standing there with his foot on a pipe looking, Daddy. You know, above the knee king jeans? Above the knee oh, king jeans? Oh, my dad was a bandit for wearing shorts and long socks, like well beyond the time when you should wear short, shorts and long socks. Not yeah. with sandals. At least he had a closed-toed shoe. Yeah. But, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine what it would have been like for those, and it was all mostly men, but for those men who worked on that, like your neighbour, George Michaelopoulos. Yeah. Um, you know, men who did this incredible service to our country. Yeah. And then to come when the job was done to then perhaps move into town and be racially vilified. It's like, yeah. you're drinking water because of me. Yeah, yeah. How dare you call yeah. me names? Why are you calling yeah. Wog? Well, this was a slum area back in the 50s and 60s, Fitzroy, an absolute slum. Um, a lot of Irish immigrants and then a lot of Greek immigrants. And, yeah, no one came into Fitzroy because, you know, the dirty, filthy foreigners lived here. So it's certainly changed a lot. And there's still a lot of... We call them Fitzroyalty, the old Greeks who still live around here in their late 70s, early 80s now. Fitzroyalty. Fitzroyalty. And they own this street. They know everybody on this street. I mean, when George, George was a massive sticky beak and uh, there was a woman on the street You don't get to day. be Fitzroyalty without knowing what's going on. Exactly. Karina. That's right. He had his finger on the pulse. <laughs> and this woman was walking along the street just outside here and I stopped and she just asked me where Elizabeth was and it became clear that she was disoriented or maybe had early dementia or something. She was way too young, like maybe 60 or something, but anyway, quite confused. George obviously hears someone talking, so he has to come out and he goes, what's going on? I said, oh, this woman's trying to find Elizabeth. And he stopped and he said, I don't know Elizabeth, but you tell me which country they're from, I tell you which house. So he knows everybody, where they're from, doesn't remember their names, that's not important. The structural integrity of their houses, don't wow. buy on that side of the street. That side of the street's very bad for flooding. This side of the street, apparently, all right. Boy. 
boy. So what? So you said your school, like you're eight years old, deciding to put on some sort of incredible f- performance art yes. piece with a fake horse and a tape recorder. Yes. Was it one of those uh, K to seven all in the one class schools, or was it? No, no, bigger no. Than- no, we had a proper primary school. Um, I think we had prep and one together, but after that, no, yeah. no, we had our separate years. That was the start of my performing career. It then reached its complete nadir with our, uh, we toured the whole of the primary school with this song as well. We uh, did Eat It to Beat It, but it was about eating snot and we made our own fake snot and I, how did it go? Eat, pick your nose and don't forget to rub it on your pantyhose. I remember that. Yeah, right. Great lyrics. And well, we had, you know, prop pantyhose and we'd smear oh. snot on that. So early on pantyhose. the performance thing was in you? Yeah, clearly. Yeah, I was destined for great things. <laughs> but some of some of us know. I remember being around, I was around eight the first time I stood yeah. on stage and got a laugh. And it's fun, and isn't I went, it? Oh, this is it. Yeah. This is the thing. Yeah. It was the greatest drug I'd ever taken and I was yeah. eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank gosh, yeah. Yeah. Well, not, I gave a few others a run, just to test, obviously. <laughs> Surely not at eight. No, I waited about six years. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. Uh, so early on, you folks recognised that you had a bit of this in you? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And I was always yeah, carrying on and putting on plays and magic shows and all of that kind of thing and um, little skits and um, copying, uh, you know, people are full frontal and they're used to, because my dad's Kiwi, Billy T. James, who was a really big comedian in um, New Zealand, my aunties used to send over VHS tapes of Billy T. James and I'd copy all of his skits and do them for my family, which I'm sure they found enormously tedious. <laughs> An eight-year-old girl, white girl, mimicking a 45-year-old Maori man and doing his material. Look, you know, you've got to, you've got to test all... <laughs> You've got to test all boundaries. Yep. <laughs> you know, you've got to explore all, all of what it is. So you stayed. Uh, when did you move from the country? At what point? Uh, when I was 18. I moved to Wodonga first, which is not far away, Aubrey Wodonga, and studied nursing for a year. Why nursing? Were you in high school and went, you know what I really want? I want to collect pus and kidney trays. No. I think it was a case of I was just too scared to come all the way to the city and I wanted to go to university and it was nursing or ag science, I think, was all that was on offer in Aubrey Wodonga at that so, stage. No, so, or like put nursing. your arm in a cow or look after people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. People. People. But wasn't very good at it. Didn't have much patience for it. Yeah. What was the day you went, no, nah, I can't do this? The day, so we were the first year to do it fully as a university degree. Before that, you just trained to be a nurse in a hospital, which there are, I think, some advantages to i.e. being practically trained in how to feed people, roll them over, all of that kind of stuff. So because it was the first year of a university degree, they didn't quite know what to do. So half of the course was first-year medicine. Uh, I had done biology at school but no physics or chemistry or anything like that. Enormously complicated, really, really difficult, taught us a whole lot of stuff and towards the end of second semester of first year, one of the lecturers very casually said, of course, all of the stuff that we've taught you, you're not allowed to actually do, only doctors are allowed to do that. And I thought, I cannot imagine the rest of my career having this knowledge and not being allowed to use it because the doctors are the only ones who are allowed to touch a stethoscope or administer these particular types of drugs. I just went, nah, I'm too bossy for that. (laughs) 
And and so what was the next option? All right. So you're living in the Twin Cities of yeah, I'm Albury, living in the Twin Cities. Albury Wodonga, yep. which are on either side of the, the Victoria New South Wales border. That's right. Sharing a bridge and a river. Um I I, I don't know. I, I personally think Albury was a little nicer. No, you're wrong. Okay. Yeah, you're wrong. Okay. That's because I lived in Wodonga. I've done so. a lot of gigs in Albury. And right. then we, we'd go over to Wodonga and go, ooh. <laughs> we just we keep it a little bit more down to earth okay. in Wodonga. <laughs> it's like Melbourne, Sydney, yeah. really, just on a much smaller scale. I would move to Melbourne if there was a surf. I really would. Melbourne's- We've got vegan shoes. What more do you need? Yeah, and next to that, it was like an $8 bowl of vegan soup, yeah. which is, that's a bargain yeah. in this day and age. Moving back yep. to Australia, shit is expensive here. Yeah, it is. Like crazy expensive. Yeah. And we've got a lot of event eating on Smith Street now. What's that? That is, you don't go out to dinner. It's like you go to that particular restaurant because that's where everybody's going. So it's an event. You're not just, uh, or you can go to the new place. I think hipster is, is, it's peak hipster where there is a skate bowl actually in the restaurant. Yeah, no. <laughs> Does seem a little weird, doesn't it? No. I've no. walked past, haven't gone in. I I'm do 42. Wa- I have no, no patience no, for that. No, I worry about, uh, you know, I worry about the hygienic integrity of that kitchen. <laughs> yeah. If whoever designed the place is really, no, no, not into it. So Wodonga, you're faced with this crossroads. Yep. Now, I often talk to people on the show about quitting. Yep. Because I I quit university after six weeks. Right. It was too hard. Right. And I'd already had a job in radio. I was like, "Uh, it doesn't suit some people. I'm I'm out. Was it difficult to quit? Did you feel you let your parents down? Yeah. I don't know if I was as wholly honest with my parents as I could have been about what I was doing next. I told them I was doing an arts degree, which was true. I did transfer down to Melbourne to La Trobe University to do an arts degree, but I kind of neglected to tell them I was going to major in drama, which is not possibly the career they were expecting. I think my dad had an idea that I was going to be some kind of international financier or work in the UN or something like that, and no, I did drama, which is like saying I'm going to throw my life and your money, mum and dad, away. <laughs> so it's got to be, surely you'd been down to Melbourne once or twice Yep. as a teenager. Yep. You roll into here, what, 19? Yep, 19. What was that like? That was, um, it was pretty overwhelming. In one way it was good because I was always a nerd at school and I wasn't, I didn't know many other nerds. And all of a sudden when you've got a bigger pool of people, you can find your kin. So I found more people like me. So that was good. How I did your nerdery manifest in the, in the science fiction or the, the bookage or the books? Yeah, I loved reading books yeah. and I wasn't very sporty and small country towns are very sporty. Yeah. So I played the sport, but I wasn't very good at the sport. Um, not very good at the sport at all. I, I much preferred reading my Jane Austens and all of that kind of stuff and dissecting it and all very of those interesting. Kinds Jane of Austen and. Um, I read this fantastic article about Jane Austen's incredible grasp of game theory. Really? Yeah. And that she had such an intricate knowledge of it. Like, for example, I can't remember the story it was, but it was one time when one of the daughters was going to visit um, What's-His-Face and called for a carriage. And Grandma, the dowager, says, no, 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 take the horse because it's going to rain tonight and you're going to want to have to stay the night. Ah, like Jane was right 
into yeah. all that business. She was very, very clever in those in those worlds. And I'm useless at that stuff. <laughs> useless. Absolutely useless. I would have taken the carriage and forgotten the snow chains. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to your arts degree and there's yep. you know, early 90s arts degrees. There was a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of that would people yeah. would say. That's yeah. their first reaction when you told them I'm doing an arts degree. Yeah. Um, now this is still at a time when Hex had just come Hex in. Hex was just coming the in. Higher education contributions game. So yeah. up to that, um, university was free yeah. in our country. So it, it had just begun that we started having to pay and the money would come out and be deducted out of your 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 pay once you started any tax years later, which yep. uh, for my big brother certainly once he, he said, oh, I've just got a raise and now I'm earning less money than I was before because yeah. I'm now in a higher tax bracket and exactly. my Hex is coming out. I didn't have to pay mine back for quite some years. <laughs> But then I did have to start paying it mm. back. Yeah, so nursing was hex exempt as well. So I hadn't been hit with that because they were trying to encourage people to do yeah. it. And then, yeah, so I started my arts degree, majored in drama. And that, I think, is where I got all of the skills. I went to La Trobe University, which is or was at least back then and probably still is now quite a working class university. So we didn't have the facilities of Melbourne University or Monash or Deakin. We didn't have dedicated theatre crews and all of that stuff. We had to learn how to do all of it ourselves, had to learn how to put up a lighting rig, how to work a lighting board, how to do all of the sound, all of that ourselves. And it gave me a real appreciation for the theatre and, and how it works and uh, gave me the ability to make my own work as well. Like there, was, there wasn't work going to come to us. You had to make it yourself. And that is essentially what stand-up comedy is, is making your own work. So all of those practical skills I got from doing that degree. I don't think I got much else out of it, but I got that. I would, because I'm, you are one of this core group of Melbourne performers that something magical happened at this. It was like yeah. Brisbane 93 to 96. There was this group of about 12 musicians yeah. that just basically boomed and dominated the Australian music industry for the next 20 years. Yeah. And it, the same happened in Melbourne. There was this little group of, I don't know, about eight of you. Yeah. You were definitely one of them. When was the first time that you, you know, were like, oh, hi, this is Will, this is Dave, this is Rove? When was, <laughs> when was the first time? How old were you? Um, Well, when I realised that we were like a little group. Well, when or, you first met them or when well, you first I came around them? Will when I was 17 years old. And we used to tell people. We're talking Will Anderson. Yeah, Will yeah, Anderson, yeah. sorry. We we used to tell people for shits and giggles because we are both children that we met on the junior professional tennis circuit and then we couldn't back the story up because uh, I would fall over because I didn't know anything about tennis. Um, but we actually met, which is a far more embarrassing story, at the Lions Youth of the Year quest, which was a speaking competition. And he'd been the Victorian champion from the year before and I was a Victorian finalist that year. So that was the first time we met and then I met him again about four or five years later when I saw him on at the ESPY, which was a big comedy room at that stage. That was the place that you wanted to get your start at was the ESPY. And I saw him on stage and I went, why does that guy look familiar? And I went, oh, God, oh, God, I'm in the city now. I'm meant to be cool. I can't talk to him about that. <laughs> no, I, waited. I reckon I waited about a year before I said to him, did you do the Lions Youth of the Year quest? And he said, I was wondering when you were going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> So we'd known each other forever, right. yeah. And what was that? What was that scene like? What was it? When did you realise that there was something kind of going on around that scene? Was I it? don't think any of us did. We were really good mates, mm. um, and I think that helped. I wonder whether the scene now 
the scene was smaller then as well. There was probably about 20 of us that all started at around the same time, give or take a couple of years. And so we all knew each other. There were less rooms, so we'd see each other at those comedy rooms on a regular basis. Um, and we just became really good mates. So Will and Rove, and he was in a double act then with a guy called Duff, um, Husey, uh, Kim Hope, Adam Richard. There was a whole bunch of us. Uh, Peter Hellier, of course, Dave Cullen, all of that group. And, yeah, we were just mucking around. So like house parties, barbecues and stuff in yeah. between the gigs as well? Yeah, we lived in each other's pockets. We were all mates as well as doing comedy. Right. And did shows together. Will and I ended up with the same agent and he decided it would be a good idea if we did shows where we came up with new material. And So, yeah, we lived in each other's pockets you, while we were writing And you wrote notes. stuff for each other? Did you call, hey, I've got this bit, I'd love you to come and be a part of it? Did you? No, we'd write some sketches and things yeah. like that together, yeah. Yeah. It's so, but it's so important. I mean, did you push each other? Did you yeah, absolutely. dissect each other's acts and stuff like that? Oh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, we'd always get feedback because we were trying out new each time we did it. Yeah, we'd give each other feedback. And, mm. Yeah. And we, and we were like brother and sister, so we fought like cats and dogs as well. But I love him to death. I will always love Will to death. He, he really does feel like family to me. Wow. It, it's so remarkable. But you started stand-up. You were originally an actor. Yep. But stand-up came to you as a... You you were you were afraid of being on stage, is that right? Yeah, it was well, sort of. It was a little bit to get over stage fright, and a little bit to learn how to deliver dialogue in a more natural way, mm. because the majority of stand up is pretty tightly scripted. And that, that that's a little bit telling the magician's tricks a bit there, but it is pretty tightly scripted. And the trick is to make it sound like it's coming right off the top of your head for the first time. For the first time. Yeah. 100 times in a row, 1,000 times in a row. Mm. So that is a really good skill to take into acting work as well when you get a script. But the problem was I started doing stand-up and I started getting paid cash in hand, you know, 19, 20 years old and someone gives you 50 bucks, you just go, sweet, this is awesome. So <coughs> I started doing more of that than anything else. And just the autonomy of it as well. I don't need a script, I don't need a director, I don't need a costume, I don't need the rest of the actors. I can just turn up and get on stage, my own material, do it however I like. You live and die on what you've come up with yourself. And I just, I really liked that independence. And that is the thing I really envy about stand-ups is that if you can hustle a gig, you'll work forever. Yeah. You really will. If you can yep. hustle a gig and keep your material relevant, you will work as long as you want to work. Yeah. Whereas someone like me, I, it, I'm just not that nimble. I can't organise a television network. No, <laughs> I know. It is, yeah. Yep. I know because I work in both camps as well. I know. And the, the feeling of not having that control is uh, – it's it is really anxiety inducing, I think, for mm. actors because you, you can't create your own work. Or, you know, if you do, if you join a community theatre group or you start your own cooperative, it is an enormous amount of work and a financial uh, burden and commitment to start that whole thing up. But stand up, you're right. You just you hustle for the gig. And we were all hungry as well. Yeah. This was I think it's a different generation now where kids stay at home with their parents for mm. longer. But we were all out on our own and having to pay our own rent and pay our own food. And so you would just take whatever gig came your way. So I did a lot of rough gigs and that taught me how to be a better performer. Such as? Such as we did one in the, we did a couple in the snow. One of them we did in the snow was me, Will, Dave Hughes, Rove, who else was on it? Uh, Duff, uh, a few others. 
Uh, and this gig had this tiny little stage about the size of my dining room table in a pub at whatever ski field we were at and there was a dance competition right beside us. And when I say dance competition, I mean it kept going while we were performing. So there's people throwing darts. 100 like, victory! <laughs> like a couple of metres from us, these sharp things are being thrown through the air right next to us on stage. No one listened to a word we were saying. Get heckled a lot. Did you drive up in the same car? No, I think we got a bus up. Oh, I don't God. think any of us could afford a car. What did we go in a car? I can't remember. All I remember is, um, apart from having darts thrown at us, was Dave Hughes had borrowed a fellow called Thomas Bromhead, who was a, an impressionist. He still does stuff. You'll, you'll see him pop up on ads occasionally. Borrowed his uh, ski suit, which was this purple all-in-one puffy thing. And that is all I can remember is seeing Dave Hughes on the ski field in this hilarious suit being unable to stand up on his feet and falling down the ski field over and over again. At least you got a laugh out of the I weekend. Got a, I got an immense, immense laugh out of it. There's Will on his snowboard, shushing down the hill, looking all Will-like, you know, groovy and dandy and Cusy swearing his head off in this great big, he looked like a purple Michelin man. It was freaking hilarious. I do. Will, six, what is he, six, six on a snowboard? Yeah, he would be. Jiminy Crickets. He's a tall dude. Yeah, I'm and five, lanky. Eight. yeah. Yeah. yeah, he would have to be, yeah, six five, six six, something yeah, like that. easily. On a snowboard. Yep. Boy. Yep. So th- I think you make a really good point about uh, not only – so you have two really great things going for you. You have this great little enclave of, of, of talented people surrounding you that is your normal. Mm. Your normal is these people yep. and their normal is you and that's normal for you to have yeah. that level around you. Not only have you got that, you're also like – if I don't get a gig, I can't afford toothpaste. Yeah. What am I going to write this week? Yep. Versus now where it's like Instagram, Reddit, da, 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 yeah. da, da. so much distraction. Yeah. And I wonder if that affects people's drive to create. I wonder whether it starts to bland everything out a little bit as well because everyone's competing to find an audience on the internet and they all start competing in the same way. So you don't see individual identities quite so much anymore. I think everyone just tries to copy mm. each other. There's a lot of sameness coming through in that respect, whereas we couldn't really compare ourselves to anybody except the generation before us who we saw on stage, yeah. who obviously came on after us because they were the headline acts, <laughs> and we'd watch them go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, they're awesome. But you learnt that way. And they were all unique and really different. You know, Greg Fleet, Anthony Morgan, Judith Lucy, Rachel Berger, those people were all really different from each other and all really cutting edge as well. Yeah. Every person you just mentioned really pushed. Yeah. Really pushed boundaries. Yeah. Who who was the first one of your uh, crew to uh, kind of break to the point where you, was it you? Did Who did you look at and go, oh, hang on, that's a really, that's next level? I think it would have been Will. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Will. I could be wrong. If any of the others listen to this, one of them goes, it was me, I'm in total trouble. But I think it was Will. Yeah. Uh, he started getting some more corporate gigs. He got a Maxi Bon ad, remember That's the right. ice cream? Yeah, he used that money to pay his stand-up. He paid, yeah. he paid his way for a year doing yeah, stand-up. God, yeah, gotcha, exactly. That's, yeah. It was a really clever move on his behalf because, yeah, he was able to finance, you know, learning his craft even better than what he had beforehand. Um, and he's always worked really, really hard. Um, 
And there was a few others like that. And then Rove would have been the next one after that who was doing his show on Channel 31, The which Loft. Community Access TV community, here in Melbourne, which yeah. is unlike the rest of Australia, has a really quite loyal following and quite quality yeah. programming, including the fish tank, which yeah. I sorely miss. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the federal government d- ditched the funding for it, so yeah. it ain't on air anymore. Yeah. It's I w- somewhere I was, on the internet. I was know? down here for a, a grand final a few years back and I, I talked to the tape hop from uh, Channel 31 and she said to me, I, I hate to break this to you, it's a recording. Mm. It's a recording. I used to come to Melbourne late at night. It was when I was still drinking. I'd come home late at night. After you thought work. that it was live fish. Yeah, and I was sitting at home and Bless. I'm watching a fish tank. I'd turn the TV on and it'd just be a shot of a fish tank. Bless. With guppies. <laughs> You're hilarious. So Rove's doing this show in the loft. You're all babies. Yeah, we're, we're all babies. I was doing a different show called Under Melbourne Tonight and it was, uh, it was great training for all of us because we were doing it again on the smell of an oily rag. And none of the equipment worked exactly how you wanted it to work. It wasn't state-of-the-art. Like the lights on the cameras wouldn't go off, so you wouldn't know which one to look at unless the camera operator was waving madly behind you, which are really good skills for live television because everything always goes wrong in live TV. Yeah, always. So we were doing that. Rove got noticed by a Channel 9 executive and asked to start up his own show on Channel 9, and he asked myself and Peter Hellyer and Dave Callan and another woman, Josie Howie, to join him. And we went, okay, like too young to really understand the gravity of that, I think, and how what a big deal it was to get a television show. It was the first late night show after the Mick Malloy Yeah, God, show. we were on at like 11 or 11.30 yeah, at night. Yeah, I remember the first episode. Really late at night. They gave Mick a show and it just tanked, unfortunately. Yeah. It was a bit too loose. It was, I think it might have been a bit too loose, yeah. yeah. And then they put Rove on and it was, I guess you can, for people who are overseas, you can kind of say it was a little Graham Norton-ish, that's it. it was sort like, of, Because there, yeah. there was a, 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 a little crew of people on stage with the main host. Yeah. And everyone was there together. Yeah. And we had sketch in that show as well. Yeah. And because we had a budget, we would never had a budget before, we were really cheeky with it. I just went, can we have an explosion in this? Yes. Oh, can we have an explosion in that as well? Yes. We would like to do this sketch in German. Can we have a translator? Yes. They stopped at the elephant. They didn't give us an elephant. But we would write sketches just based on how far we could take the network saying yes to us. <laughs> It was very, having said that, it was still quite an experimental show. Yeah, it was. Especially for a major network. And yep. at the time, the biggest network, it still the yep. biggest network. Uh, and pre-internet, kind of not much cable TV penetration yep. in Australia. So all eyeballs are on you. All eyeballs are on you. And the comedy was a little bit absurdist as well, mm. which is not very mainstream, but we figured we could because it was 11.30 at night. I think we did 10 episodes, something like that, and they didn't renew us. Um, they couldn't see how it would translate into a, an earlier time slot and become a commercial show, even though we said, no, no, we know what to do now to be an earlier time slot. We just did that because we were on at 11.30 at night and we could. Mm. But Channel 10 did believe that we could do that and so we moved over to Channel 10. Well, hang on, before you that, what was it like when they didn't renew you? You all worked so hard on it. You thought, this is it, here we go. It's the nature of being a comedian though. I, I think that and the nature of never really having long-term work it was just a case of oh well that was fun while it lasted and then when word came out that there might be talks with channel 10 it was still a case of oh okay well if it comes off it comes off if it doesn't that was fun we'll go back to what we were doing beforehand I and mean, we were all still doing stand-up anyway 
And we didn't get profiles out of it or anything like that either. It was on at 11.30 at night. So you could still walk down the street and no one recognised you or do any of those things. If the show had been axed instead of not renewed, it wouldn't have made the front page of the paper. Mm. Like it just would have dribbled away and we would have gone back to what we were doing. Does having the stand-up, because I know when when actors, like living in Los Angeles for so long and my ex-wife being an actor, um, when stuff gets cancelled, it's like, oh, like, what do we do now? Yeah. And, it's, 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 and you really, um, uh, when people book a job over there, they've pretty much already. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Spent the first paycheck yep. in their mind. Yep. Before the pilot's been shot. Yeah. You know, but as as a stand-up, you kind of insulate yourself from that a bit because you have this core of like, no, 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 I work for myself. Yep. I create my own work and I go and do my own work. Anything else is a bonus. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. amazing. What a way to go. Yeah, it's, it is. it is. It's really good. And also back then we didn't have anything to lose. Like none of us had mortgages or, yeah. or kids or anything like that. So yeah. worst comes to worst, oh, well, you go on the doll and then you pick up and you start again. Now it's... It's different, I think. Now, yeah. you know, all of us have got mortgages and most of us have got kids and that kind of thing. So you have to think more long-term about your career and yeah. make sure that there's something booked in <laughs> ahead of time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm like that now. I'm trying my, so I've been with my girlfriend for a little over a year. And um, so, right, we finished shooting Bachelor. We finished shooting Bachelorette. It's all done. Right, yeah. I'm technically unemployed. You and totally know who wins then. I, Do you win on Bachelor? No. Well, yes, love. Oh, you <laughs> okay? Yes, okay. You win love. That's what you win. Win love, happiness. Right. Okay. It's priceless, Karim. Okay. Priceless. Is it? Uh, yes, I know all the. I know all the secrets. Um, the uh, but yeah, I'm technically unemployed as far as television goes. Mm. I've got a side gig in Amsterdam that I do, which is great. And a, yep. A few is that selling pot? Radio things. No, no. I work at a business school there. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, a, cool. I have a secret life where I work at a, 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 a C school um, teaching uh, the next generation that of entrepreneurs. That is cool. That's cool. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. I really like it. Um, How do you even get a gig like that? I went there. I went to that school. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I went, I went and studied. because I, right. I was unemployed. Yep. And I thought, well, I've got, uh, I've got nothing. I can't yeah. do anything. Uh, if I'm going to do anything, it might not be in television. Yeah. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to need because I'd, I'd, I'd fundraised for a few startups. I'd started putting a few businesses together. They hadn't really worked. A few tech things up in San Francisco yep. hadn't really worked. And I thought, I'm going to need some more skills. So I found this school in Amsterdam and I went there and then uh, they hired me to come and be a part of their forum program, which is basically like a moderated TED talk. Right. Basically. Yep. So I help find the people that um, come and do them and, and create the content. And, yeah, and like cool. That. Yeah, it's brilliant. So yeah, I was 
uh, it was interesting convincing my accountant. Yes, I know I've got no money and I'm paying my rent out of my savings, but I want to go and spend so many thousand euros yeah. uh, on an 18-month course in Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, if you really want to. I was like, yes, I really want to. That's what I did when yeah. I went to my financial planner and said, so I'm going to remortgage my house and do a law degree. And she went, uh, what? I said, it'll be fine. It'll be totally fine. <laughs> Well, I do, we, we will we will talk about that. I was going to want to talk about because yes, because right now I'm technically television unemployed. Yeah. So I'm in hustle mode now. Yeah. I'm like you know, batch. We've just launched last night was the first yep. episode, and now I'm just like putting projects together. How can I make a next show? What's yeah. the next show going to be? Because if Bachelor doesn't come back, I've got yep. a mortgage. And it's really <laughs> it's it's like. It's like throwing wet toilet paper at a wall and waiting for a bit to stick. You just got to keep pitching ideas and you never know what a network is going to pick up either. They'll pick yeah. up something and go, really, is that idea? Because that was one I really pulled out of my ass and I didn't think there was much to it. Okay. Let's okay. go. You want to yeah. play me? I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you were doing Rove's show, that was on the, that, so that you've got, you're on two um, commercial networks. Yep. And then in the middle of all that, there's a, there's a, there's a, another show that turns up on the ABC, which yep. is our national public broadcaster. Yep. Uh, and it was a show called The Glass House. Yeah. Which is yourself and Dave, Dave and, Will. and Will. So the same people you've known. Yep. For 15 years by this point. Yep. Um, you are making a new show. How did The, the Glass House come about? That came about because, um, remember Good News Week? Yes. Yeah, so it was in the UK, it was called How's Your News? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah called, or and something now it's like on that. television masquerading as Dirty Laundry. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I it's, pretty much, it's pretty laundry. much the same. It's right. Same. Okay. Basically, a panel show with a bunch of comedians talking about current affairs, really, yeah. dressed up in different guises. It's not a, a, a super new idea, but it was a su- super successful show because they got the right talent involved in it. It's very fun. It was a great show and I grew up watching that. Anyway, ABC didn't renew that and the producer of that show, Ted Robinson, came up with a new idea essentially to make sure that his producers and his writers could keep working and that show was The Glass House. So uh, Will and Dave and I were pulled in to do that, which was was a big decision for me because I had just started on Rove on Channel 10 and I felt like I was betraying them by also working on another show, but they were really cool about it and they let me do it. And um, and that was, they were two really different shows too. The, the show on Channel 10 was light entertainment. You didn't talk about politics or current affairs at all, which is something I've always had a real passion for. Um, I also have a passion for acting like a dickhead. So I could do that on the Channel 10 show. And then on the ABC show on The Glass House, I could talk about politics and current affairs and really sink my teeth into that. And working with Will and Dave was like coming home. It's just the three of us, the synergy of that was amazing. We just knew what each other was thinking, knew how to support each other, knew who was coming up with a gag and about to, you know, come for the punchline and not to tread on it. It was, it was, it was like playing a really sweet tennis match. The ball's just going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. It was wonderful. You talked about being edgy on the Channel 9 version of Rove, but you got yeah. pretty edgy on Glasshouse. Glasshouse was pretty edgy, yeah. Yeah. We were making, I think we were the first ones to make jokes about 9-11. Wow. And not about 9-11 but about some of the media reporting around it, which was utterly ridiculous at the time. But we couldn't ignore it. It had just happened. So, and, you know, we knew our audience would expect us to say something, so we took the piss out of some of the media reporting on it. 
But that was what the show was supposed to be. It was supposed to be edgy and it's pretty nothing's changed about that. It's still the same. Those media people are still telling yeah. people every day that Islam's gonna try and kill your babies. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Fucking hell, man. I know. Is Islam's gonna kill your babies, and yet a freaking Nazi tries to get from Sydney to Melbourne with a gun, and they just say, Oh, just leave the gun behind, mate, and let him keep going. If that had been a Muslim, it would have been front page news. They would have been locked up as a terrorist. But Tony no, Abbott would have been in front of the Australian flag shop again. Yeah, that's right. Just going, ISIS is coming to get us. But Nazis, no, nah, that's all right. Totally cool. They're reasonable people. They're take, their, take their guns off them and they'll be totally fine. Totally so. The neck tats say reasonable person. Oh, my God. Uh, but your, your time on the glass house was not without controversy. No. So what was it like in the production office when – it started to really ruffle feathers, uh, particularly outside of the ABC and with the people who were funding the ABC. Just made us dig in harder. Yeah? Yeah. So it's, you know, that's a form of censorship as far as I'm concerned, saying, well, you shouldn't be telling jokes about the government, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. Hell yeah, we should. The fact that it's upsetting you means that we should be doing it. We couldn't, like they talk about, no Liberals will go on Q&A at the moment. After I think the first or second season of The Glass House, no Liberals would come on on The Glass House. This is the, our version of the Republicans, the Conservative yeah. Party. Yeah. yeah. Not Liberal at all. Not Liberal at all. No, no, no. They're, yeah, somewhere between the Republicans and the Tea Party. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and so there was, there's a show on air at the moment called Q&A, which often has politicians on it, and the Liberal Party have said they won't come on it anymore because of oh, goodness knows what reason. But they, they never overtly said they wouldn't come on the glass house. They were just never available anymore. So, you know, we just been, okay, then fine. Don't come on. It's not going to stop us talking about you. You make an interesting point, though. If it's making you uncomfortable, therefore we're saying the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is at the moment, that's exactly what's happening at the moment with the Adam Goods um, scenario. Yeah. People are, so at the moment there's an Indigenous Australian um, footballer of enormously high, priori- high profile. He won the Australian of the Year. Yep. He's an incredibly talented player. He's, yep. a, he's a, a, a lighthouse for the community of the Indigenous Australians. Yeah. And he's currently getting booed and being called all sorts of horrific racist things. And there's a lot of middle-class white men um, Privileged white men on television going, you should just suck it up. Yeah, isn't it extraordinary? It just bothers me so greatly. And he, yeah. he's not playing this weekend. No, because it's starting to break him, this which is really so upsetting. I want to weep when I think about it. I know. It. This is my country. This is my, I know. my Australia. And what does that say to other, to Indigenous kids too, when someone like yeah. Adam Good says, I can't cope with it anymore? That says to them, well, this country, if I stick my head up, this country is going to try and tear me down. Like it's totally shit. It's, oh, it just, I often wonder though, and I'm sure you must have thought this when you were doing your time in the glass house, having such scrutiny over, over the media and media reporting. Do the kind of more right-wing conservative mouthpieces of the media, do they just take the raw information and go, what's going to get people the most agitated? Yeah. How can I spin this to get people the most upset? I think that's what they do. Yeah, they're looking for moral outrage. And I just, I have never taken them seriously. Conchetta Fiorenti Wells, who's a senator, got up in parliament and made some comments about me being a union stooge or something or being involved in the union movement. Well, they just wrote a piece for the age and took the piss out of her. I don't care. Stand up in parliament and say whatever you like about me. (laughs) Don't care. Can we talk about politics? Yeah. Are you still a member of the Labor Party? No. 
Why did you become a member of the Labor Party? I was only, well, I wasn't at that stage. I was a member of the Labor Party for like three months and went oh. to one, um, I'd been involved in the Labor Party when I was a student politician, but I never actually joined the party. I just joined the, like the union version of it. And then became a member of the Labor Party with a boyfriend in like 1998 or something. We turned up to one meeting and it was the most boring thing I'd ever been to in my life. I went, oh, God, I'm never doing that again. And then Tampa happened in 2001, which is when a bunch of asylum seekers on a boat on their way to Australia were held up by the Howard government. And it, it almost we almost went to war with, was it Norway, I think, over what we were going to do with these people. And the Labor Party backed the Howard government on that. And I just went, and I'm not renewing my membership after that. If you can't, if you don't have the guts to stand up for refugees, then you don't have, you don't deserve my support. Right. What, because a lot of people may not realise that there's a way to participate in politics in Australia aside from your vote. Yeah. yeah you can actually become a member of these parties. Yep. Yeah, you become a member of the party and with a party like the Labor Party, you then get to vote as well. They just had national conference this weekend where they decided on, you know, their policies for the upcoming election and hmm. that got very controversial. The Labor Party's decided that they will consider boat turnbacks, which means people in rickety boats will be turned around and sent back to Indonesia. Um, so, yeah, I have worked for the Labor Party over the years as well, but now, no, no. Hmm. If you don't have the guts, if you say that you're the party of compassion, then freaking show you the party of compassion. I read something today about um, if you want to do a simple test of if if um, if something has a humanitarian aspect or not, just ask yourself, how would I feel if this was done to me? Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at Pretty it. Pretty much it. How can yep. Because so often the way that these things are reported on by the folks we were just talking about it so incredibly dehumanizes, yeah, astonishingly dehumanizes these human beings' uh, yep. experience, and they're they're just men, women, and children who want three meals a day and a safe place for their kids yep. at night, just like you and me. And that's that's, it. that's all I want. And it, there's so much misinformation about it. The idea that we are turning boats around to stop people drowning at seas—it's just, just bullshit. It just what we what we what they don't want is people dying on their watch. They're quite happy to send them back to Indonesia where they will die slowly and not end up on the front page of our newspapers. That's the only difference. No one knows what happens to those people when they're turned around. It makes me very angry. No, it's like fine. It makes me really angry too. And there's there's so much. You know, I often, I often wonder the 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 rampant ability for. Uh, just misinformed Facebook click um, yeah. activism uh, of complete misinformation yeah. uh, about um, people who are seeking asylum and about the Islamic community. Yeah. Um, it, I wonder if the left has ever thought about perhaps it might be time to combat that because most recently I was thinking like you just have a look at any recent article that um, let's say, for example, Andrew Bolt has written. Yeah. About Islam. Take every word, every time he says Islam, take that out and put Judaism in. Yeah. Take yeah. Muslim out and put Jew in. Yeah. You tell me how long that guy yeah, can exactly. walk around in the street before international condemnation comes this way. It's really true. It's the new anti Semitism. Yeah. And it is so frightening. It is yeah. just so, so, so frightening. But unfortunately, for the majority peaceful Islamic community on the planet, there's a couple of complete fucking psychopaths with cell phones yeah. who are doing the most 
deplorable butchery to human beings. You don't have to be Muslim to do that either. Like Anders Breivik wasn't Muslim, the guy who killed all of those people in Denmark. You're, you're absolutely right. Like it's it's got nothing to do with religion, really. You're either an asshole or you're not. <laughs> yeah. I should have been a psychiatrist or a psychologist, should I? There's my, still time. My understanding of the human condition is very deep. There's still there's still time. There's still time. So, but so let's speak about that. You did you did write a little about that that kind of world when you write about um, hoarding. In, yeah. In your book. Was was yep. that a your house looks amazing. It looks beautiful. Thanks. There's nothing really amiss. It looks way cleaner than my place. <laughs> um is that IKEA? Not my couch. No, it's not IKEA. No. It? Mine is. It's a copy of that. I think the rug is IKEA. My my couch is an IKEA copy of that couch. Oh right. And that little bit there lifts up and you can stash all this stuff. That in is it. what I wish mine did. Well, that becomes a bed. This folds out and becomes a bed. Yeah, mine does that. I got a bed in it, but oh. I don't I want the storage. The thing. stash. That's where you yeah. put all the um the sheets in business. That's where I would put my sheets in business, yeah. Because yes. I don't have much storage. Like I've got that covered there. So for someone who wrote about hoarding, that's not much space. No. Is that a deliberate move? Yep. Right. Yep. What was it like before then? Well, no, I mean, I wasn't living in this house. Like when I when I said I used the word hoarder quite naively. I think when I used the word hoarder in the title of the book, I was thinking it when we grew up in the country, everyone was considered to be a hoarder. You just had too much stuff around. All the teaspoons. Yeah, all the teaspoons, magazines because there were recipes in them that you might want to use at some stage in the future, all of that kind of thing. You'd have sheds on your property so you could keep all of your old farm machinery. You just had heaps of space. So there was no need to get rid of anything. So I was that kind of hoarder. But then, of course, shows like A&E's Hoarders come out where, you know, it's people burrowing through rotting cat feces and newspapers. I was not that kind of hoarder. Okay. I just had too much stuff. Okay. So I got rid of my stuff and I wrote a book about the process. And as part of that, just to get a bit of perspective, for my audience reading the book, I went to Jordan and I interviewed Iraqi refugees who'd just come over from the Iraq war and asked them about what it was like to leave with nothing, essentially. And all of them just said the same thing, that, you know, they're alive and if they could have anything back, it would be to go home. They didn't really care about this stuff. Wedding photos came up a bit, wedding photos and baby photos. But apart from that, they just wanted to go home. It's just stuff. Yep, it was just stuff. Isn't that wild that we live here mm. in a society where we're so judged on you've got this stuff, but oh, I've got this stuff. Yeah. My stuff bigger and shinier than your stuff. Don't you want my stuff? Yeah. It's on sale right now. Harvey Norman made the, in China. The iPhone obsession too. As soon as a new iPhone comes out, everybody's got to have the new one. Well, my old one works perfectly fine. I'm just going to keep using the old one. Stuff. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So when you it does drop on you when you get to... You know, I've, I've spent some time in the Middle East and mm. when you see folks who are going through such desperate times, it really yep. it can kind of, yep. you get back here and go, oh, yeah. And yeah. they were people like us. They were middle-class people living middle-class lives in Iraq and, you know, their world got turned upside down, which when, is lucky that it hasn't happened here. The narrative is that the any any person who's a refugee, I guess the general person's narrative is they may be uneducated or they were living in a mud hut anyway. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. No. Doctors and dentists and lawyers become refugees as well. Yeah. War doesn't discriminate like that. On the weekend, uh, we went up to Brisbane uh, and uh, mum, actually no, mum came down. Mum came down and she was telling uh, 
after one or two wines, she was telling a few stories about World War II and right. escaping from Lithuania. Both my folks were refugees at one point. Right. And she says that they were little, and she was telling um, the my uh, girlfriend's daughter, who's 11, uh, loves her stuff, um, was telling her about what it was like when she was a little girl. She's like, all I remember is being on the back of a cart with my father's cavalry horse towing us on the cart right. under a big blanket to keep us uh, yeah. warm and our heads down. And I remember just like coming up and all I saw was snow from horizon to horizon wow. and just people walking. Yeah. We had a horse, but there was just people walking, yeah, just geez. walking as far as she could see, walking. Nothing. They had mm. nothing. Just walking away yeah. from the front with nothing. Yeah. And my grandfather was a lieutenant in the cavalry. He was yep. like mates with the mayor and they yep. left with nothing. Yep. And that's what happens. Yeah. And I've never understood either the argument that if you can pay for a boat journey or you can pay to get to Australia, then you're rich. You think, no, that costs about 10 grand and the whole community joins together, all of the family does that. And also, like most people, if they had to, could find a way to scratch together 10 grand you sell all of your possessions, you sell your car, you sell everything you own, your fridge, your washing machine, your TV, you're going to have 10 grand. That doesn't make you rich. Like you were not rich just because you can afford to do that trip. And if you had the choice of pay all the money I can find in the world to someone or stay here and die, yeah, what's it going to be? That's right. <laughs> what we shouldn't let, even if you were rich, well, you deserve to die because you're rich? I mean, that's ridiculous. There's no logic to it. Goodness. Goodness, goodness, goodness. Well, I'm glad that hoarding wasn't actually like you weren't the kind of no, that kind of hoarder. I was not a crazy cat lady. Well, that's very that's very troubling. And that's that's uh, you know, it makes a great TV show because it's a physical manifestation of a mental illness. It's totally a mental illness. Yep. And that annoys me actually that a lot of those shows, and even the way that it's approached from a psychiatrist's point of view, still I think. They consider hoarding to be an illness, where I think hoarding is a symptom a of symptom. an underlying illness. It is a symptom, absolutely. And it could be any number of different yeah. underlying illnesses before as well. I, before I started on, on meds, I, would, you know, I distinctly remember um, uh, using my feet to shove a pathway on the carpet so I could get from the bedroom yeah. to the kitchen. There was just that much shit in my house. Yeah, right. I lived alone. Yeah. No one cared. No one, I never let anybody in. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that was just that was an OCD type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't know I was undiagnosed at that point. Yeah, but yeah, but I just remember just having just so my mates would come over and go, "What's we got to?" If you I was at the time I was dating my now ex-wife, and they're like, "She's coming over." And I said, "Yes, look, dude." And, and these guys just went to town and helped me clean my house. Like, she right. can't see your house like this. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was heavy. Yeah, yeah. but it is. But you, I mean, it creeps up on you. I think that's the thing especially if there's an underlying reason for why you're doing it. That's why I always get annoyed with those shows where they just take the stuff away and you haven't got to the reason why they're holding on to it. Mm. And if you just rip it away from them, you're actually going to cause them greater psychological damage Yeah. and they will probably revert to hoarding even worse than they did beforehand. I think it, it is, from my perspective, is that the, the removal of the hoard is, a, is an important part of it. Maybe they're not showing the therapy part of it. Yeah, well, I don't know with those shows. I hope there is yeah. some therapy. What's I wild is the, is. is the codependence that goes along with it, the families yeah. that are living there. 
Yeah. Like the, I remember I saw one, there was a husband who was sleeping in the car because he hadn't been able to get into the bedroom for seven yeah. years. You know, and that's proper codependence. Proper codependence. Like it's such a, a, a permissive illness, a pervasive illness. Sorry. Yep. Just a pervasive illness that, yeah, full on. You, um, you still perform, you still stand up? Oh, very, very rarely. I still do a fair bit of corporate MC work and I facilitate um, discussions and that kind of love thing. Love those cash gigs. Love, yeah. Love those corporate <laughs> gigs. Love, love a luncheon. You're yeah. wrapped by 3 p.m., beat the traffic home. Sweet. Yeah, it's good, so isn't you it? Get a gift bag. <laughs> so awesome. So yeah. The best. So I do a bit golf of Golf umbrellas. Golf umbrellas. Jeez, I'm not doing the right gigs, actually. <laughs> I don't want a golf umbrella. You've got to get Erin totally on right. that, mate. Yeah. Gotta- yeah. No, okay. yeah, yeah, because we've got the same agent. Yeah. yeah. I'll give her a call to say, I want one of those gigs where I get a golf umbrella. Yeah. Snap, snap. Yeah, she'll make, she'll make it happen. She'll laugh and call me a dickhead. That's what will happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at one point you went, um, okay, so my Latrobe arts degree might not be the tertiary education I was looking for. I'm off to go do law. Yeah. So that came about. So I'm in my third year now, which is the final year of doing it. I've got six months to go. Um, So about four years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night just having one of those full panic attacks and I was imagining myself still on stage in a smoky pub at 1 o'clock in the morning to a crowd full of pissed 22-year-olds when I was 60. And I went, "That, that cannot be the rest of my life. That cannot be the legacy that I leave behind. I don't, behind that. That, that just can't be everything that I contribute to the planet. And so I started thinking about what I could do. And I've always, you know, obviously I have a real passion for um, human rights causes and asylum seekers and refugees. I just wanted to figure out something that I could do that meant that I could become more proactively involved in that instead of just commenting on it. And a friend of mine who's a barrister said, do a law degree. And I went, no, that is too much work. And he lied and said, no, it's not. <laughs> It's it's just it's only three years now. It's post grad. You can do it and keep working. I went okay then. And I like I did a bit. I did about a year's worth of research, talking to other lawyers, finding out what it actually would entail to be a lawyer at the other end of it. And I went, yep, I want to do this. And he totally lied because I have had no life for three years. It's like fourteen hours a day, seven days a week, brutal, but good. I know stuff now. Yeah, I know totes, lots, heaps of stuff. What's it like being the mature age student amongst a lot of a bunch of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed twenty-year-olds? That I can tell you when that came home to me. We were working on a group assignment, and it's me and four boys who are about 23, 24 years old, and we're all sitting around. And um, it was around the time that that U two album just popped up on everybody's iPhones, yeah. and they were talking about that. And I went, "Ugh, U two. They used to be good." And the guys were going, "No, this album's..." Like, this album's actually really good. I went, no, you don't understand, like, the Joshua Tree and songs like Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And I used to have this massive crush on the edge and everybody went really silent. I said, okay, when I had a crush on the edge, none of you were even born yet, were you? And I went, all right, just get back to work. Everybody just get back to work and forget any of this ever happened. It was awful. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, I actually am that old. That's all right. Yeah, it's fine. I didn't. I see myself as one of them, and it was only at that point I went. I totally am not one of them. I am twenty years older than them. Yeah, which to them almost makes me on a Zimmer frame. So we're talking about the kids. We're talking about these people that we talked about earlier who are you know still living at home, and now they're paying 
a fair amount more for their degrees than yeah. than a lot of people were in the you know twenty years ago. Yeah. Do you get a sense and a difference of work ethic with these people? No, most people who are doing a law degree are doing it because you, you have to be kind of type A to do a law degree in the mm. first place. So they're pretty driven people, and you just wouldn't pass unless you worked really really hard. So nine tenths of them knew what they were getting into when they started it, and yeah, all of us work. Is it really fun to be hard. on campus again? No, it's inconvenient. It messes with my life. <laughs> it's annoying having to go there and carry my books and carry my computer and stuff and turn up to class and I've got work to do. But unfortunately, if I don't go to class, I will never, I will never keep up. So, yeah, I go along. I was in class this morning for three hours. But I had a really cool lecturer. I've just started media law and I've got a really cool lecturer. So in six months you, you book what, you... But is there a bar exam in Australia? I don't quite know how it works. Uh, yeah, that's it. So in Australia, we have it's it, it's a split profession. So you're either a solicitor or a barrister in in Victoria, at least. Um, you can be a solicitor or a barrister. Whereas I think in America, you, you are just both at once. So mm. the barrister are the ones who get up and talk in court, essentially, and the solicitors are the ones who do all the um, they do wills and trusts and all of that paperwork stuff. But they also prepare. The material for a barrister to take to court. Um, so once you've finished your three years, you then have to do another year of study after that while you're working as well. Uh, and then after that, I think you can get admitted as a solicitor. But if you want to become a barrister, you then have to sit the bar exam. So is that well. something that you want to do? You want to be a solicitor? Yeah, at the moment, I want to be a solicitor. At the moment, I like the idea of that more than a barrister. Mm -hmm. The barrister is back in that performing world. It's back to being self-employed. I really, after 22 years of being self-employed, like the idea of getting a paycheck where the tax has been taken out of it, yeah. the super, the superannuation. <laughs> I don't have to do a quarterly freaking BAS statement and yeah. do all of the paperwork for the tax. Just somebody does all of that for me. So good. You get sick days. How good are they? What is a sick day? Aren't they great? You get, you get leave loading. Yeah. That's Performers do not get sick like First sick time days. I got leave loading when I was looking at Fox, so I was like, what's that? It's like, well, if you could have worked these days, you could have gone overtime. So this is like, what kind of union rally happened to make this happen? Yeah. This is awesome. It's sweet, isn't yeah, it? It's so good. Yeah. So the idea is to, you know, you say, you say you're doing media law, but the idea is to go into bat for humanitarian issues in this country. Yeah, humanitarian issues and just plaintiff law in general. So battler law is what I like to call it. So looking after people who've been screwed over by their employer mm. or have been injured at work or um, have, you know, what, what's a good example of a case that was run recently? The Bonsoy case where there was extremely high levels of iodine in soy milk and a whole lot of women ended up infertile drinking it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so they deserve compensation for that. They can never have children and all of the other illnesses that go along with that. So that kind of law, justice for ordinary people and stop corporations and governments screwing everybody over. Dirty lefty law. Love it. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people get into law because it's the quickest path to a boat. To, oh, yes. I don't <laughs> think the kind of law I'm doing I will ever afford a yacht. No. No. Okay. No. Maybe a Lego version of a yacht. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That'll be about it. You might meet someone who has a yacht, though. Ah, that's the way to do it. Get invited See? out. 
That's heaps easier. Just easier. meet people, make friends with people with boats. That's the way. I don't have to work for a boat myself that way. No. Somebody else has done the work and I just hitch onto their coattails. It's the way forward. Yeah. It's the way forward. Well, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting and exciting transitional part of your career. Yep. There's, but there are skills that you've got that you can use yeah. in this going forward, I'm sure. I can think on my feet. Yeah. Um, that's really useful. And I think 20-odd years too of hanging around people from all different walks of life, from the people you meet when you do a stand-up gig to, you know, the CEOs of companies and politicians and all those kind of things that you meet at corporate performances. I'm comfortable talking to all ends of the spectrum and that's a really useful skill to have. And also just being a bit older as well. I've, I can't imagine if I was 22 and having to deal with some of the issues you have to deal with as a, as a lawyer. You know, people have gone through terrible, terrible things and they're coming to you for help. I'm not quite sure at 22 I would have had the emotional maturity to be able to have dealt with that without it, either me doing a poor job of it for that person or me becoming really upset about it myself. So right. as you get a bit older you've been around the world a little bit more, it's a bit easier to You're going to do a year. Deal with those things. All right, here's my prediction. You're going to do two years of this. Mm-hmm. That's when the documentary idea will come to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll facilitate that. You'll produce yeah. it or, or the, the next show. And because as we've seen with that sugar film, the way to get information into people's heads is to make them laugh and then slip something smart in yeah. and then make them laugh again. Yeah, exactly. That's the way. That's yeah. the way. Yeah. Have you seen that sugar film? No. God damn, it's terrifying. What is the sugar film? It's oh, a, is it about how bad sugar is for And you? how much sugar is in the world. I'm totally not watching that. I really like sugar. Watch it. No. Made by an Aussie bloke. You ruined sugar for me. It's pretty good. No. It's pretty amazing. I don't, want, don't take sugar away from me. You want to go into Bat for Battlers who are unknowingly becoming addicted to sugar hidden in their foods, which is then turning off their appetite control, which is causing them having a massive, massive obesity-related illnesses, shortening their lifespan. That's battler law. That is battler law. Sugar. That does sound like American law as well. That sounds like a case. That would run in America. Mate, This you've got to check this show out. You've got to check out this documentary. That's a whole conspiracy theory right there. I'm not saying it's not true at all. No, it's not conspiracy at all. It's no. actually happening. But that actually that does sound like conspiracy. Like they have worked together to figure out, a team of people have worked out how you can use sugar to addict people to particular types of food. Uh, it's not particular types of food. It switches off your appetite control. Right. So you just keep eating. Oh. Shit food because right. you're craving the sugar. And because you're eating such terrible food, you then get rather large and then you're 42 with the heart the size of Farlap and, you know, you just you can't move. drop dead. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that would make me angry. All of those shows make me angry though. The food, yeah, the way that we – I did a, a talk a couple of weeks ago last week as part of a, a little um, series I'm doing at the moment where I'm hosting it and we interview particular people and this woman was talking about food sustainability and about organic food, not from the point of view of health though. She was talking about it from the point of, you know, climate change and uh, environmental impact and that we are really disempowered. Like you can turn off as many lights in your house as you like and recycle as much as you like but it doesn't make much of a dent one of the worst things we are doing is the way that we consume food. Absolutely. And you can take that back by going to a farmer's market to buy your stuff. Or if you can't get to a farmer's market, just buying organic because they're not using pesticides. They grow it on a smaller plot of land. It doesn't travel as far. I mean, actually, that all makes sense and I can I can do that. Yeah. 
that's not too hard at all. My uh, my buddy my buddy Jared has a great line about that. So you know what my grandfather calls organic farming? Farming. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's farming. It's just farming. Yep. Put it in the ground. Yep. Pick it when it's right. Eat yep. It. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Yep. But then there's another argument which I you know I, I'm actually quite interested in is the you know the argument towards GMO uh, food in in developing nations. For example, if you can, I read this fantastic article about a pesticide resistant eggplant. Yeah, uh, that is particularly resistant to this one kind of beetle that eats it, and uh, because of this eggplant, farmers in some of the most impoverished parts of India uh, can now actually turn a living wage and can lift themselves out of the depths of enormous poverty, mm. and their community as such comes with them because of this incredible creation of this. this I food. wonder though whether that could have been done through using permaculture techniques as well by planting another type of plant that. Um, uh, what's the word? Repels the insects in the first place. Whether anybody looked at all of that um, kind of, I'm always just looking for where the dollar goes, oh, and yeah. the dollar is going to the company that has genetically modified that plant. Yeah, like they've they made a lot of money out of that, so it's worth their while to say we're saving heaps of lives doing this. You could have done it like this, and it would have been a little bit cheaper, but we wouldn't have made any money out of it. But here's a way you can do it without saving the planet: patented eggplant. <laughs> It's me being very cynical. Battler law. Battler law. <laughs> can you please write that? Can you have T-shirts? Yeah. And everyone who, everyone, <laughs> every time you close the case, they get a stubby cooler. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Battler law. <laughs> Not one of the ones made of wetsuit. I'm talking about the old ones that go. Oh, yeah. When you put the beer into it. Yep. With the foam inside. Or you could get a complimentary lager phone. <laughs> I'm going to open my own law firm. I obviously understand commercial reality very well. Battler Law. Every client gets their own lager phone. Karindra Esquire. Yep. <laughs> I've got this all figured out. Because everybody wants a lager phone, don't they? I can't. No. Nobody knows what it is. It's, look, it's the greatest Australian instrument ever invented. It's a broom handle that you nail a lot of bottle tops to that come from beer bottles, hence lager. That you've drunk. And then you bang, bang it up and down and it makes a lovely rattling sound. It's like a tambourine. It's a battler's tambourine. <laughs> Battle of <laughs> We have to stop. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Okay. Okay as well. Thank you. That was Corinne Grant. You can find her on Twitter at Corinne, C-O-R-I-N-N-E underscore Grant, G-R-A-N-T. Let her know that you heard her here on this show and follow her on Twitter. She's got a lot of very interesting things that um, she's in the pursuit of and supporting. And she is one of these people who's really true to her values and, and doing work that aligns with what she feels is important, which is super cool and quite inspiring to me. Thanks heaps for listening. If you want to have this show turn up on your phone next week without even looking for it, you can subscribe right now in uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. Send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com. Find me online. I'm on Crackbook, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever, you know. Hey, have a great week. Take a deep breath. Look after those around you listen when people are saying hey dude are you all right because you might not be sleep well and dream
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.